Looking back at life 100 years ago in Kilkenny, this is the History Show on KCLR. With thanks to the Heritage Office of Kilkenny County Council and the Commemorations Unit of the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gaeltacht, Sport and Media. It's 10 minutes past six. You're very welcome along once again to another edition of the History Show here on KCLR. I'm John Moynihan and I do hope you'll stay with me over the course of the next hour as we once again recount the stories and life from Kilkenny in 1922. Tonight, among other things, we're building towards our look back at the burning of Woodstock House 100 years ago. Coming up. Kilkenny-based writer and director Gillian Grattan speaks to me about her upcoming radio drama entitled The Burning of Woodstock, which will be aired here on KCLR this coming weekend. Part two of my chat with fashion historian, blogger and writer Ruth Griffin, who tells us about the famous fashion brands and designers that we saw in our shop windows in Kilkenny 100 years ago, as well as the attire worn to the dance halls of the locality. And we'll be hearing about Wine Gap's last post office, which also doubled as its telephone exchange. So a busy show ahead, as per usual. I do hope you can stay with me. As always, if you want to get in touch with the programme, you can text me on the KCLR text and WhatsApp line. That's on 083 306 9696. And that, of course, is in association with dinnersready.ie. Or you can email the programme at thehistoryshow at kclr96fm.com. And you can listen back to previous episodes of the programme online at kclr96fm.com forward slash the history show or on the KCLR app. But first this evening, we're going to hear from Kilkenny man Joseph O'Neill. Joseph got in touch with me recently, having heard a few previous episodes of the programme, and he decided that he'd like to tell his story. Joseph is a nephew of the late John Morn, a volunteer soldier in James Stevens' barracks in Kilkenny during the Civil War in 1922. And even 100 years later, John's death is still the subject of much confusion and heartbreak. My name is Joseph O'Neill, and one of my uncles is named John Moran. Joseph, can you tell us a bit more about your uncle John and what happened to him? Yes, of course. My uncle was a volunteer soldier in the army barracks in Kilkenny in 1922. He may have been in it, uh, in the army a couple of years or thereabouts, but he, he was stationed in Kilkenny and uh, obviously defending the state against what was happening at the time. And um, unfortunately, there there was an incident towards uh, the middle of 1922, which appeared to maybe cause a catastrophic incident throughout the family afterwards because the family basically um, split up uh, the other two boys, there were three boys and six girls and uh, the other two boys, one went to London and one went to Scotland Jimmy went to Scotland Motherwell he went to Residen and he worked in the mines over there I believe and uh, Bill went to London where he worked on the building industry uh, I think he worked for John Long now there were six girls of which my mother was the youngest that was Esther there certainly was my aunt my auntie Mary my auntie Madge my auntie Lena and uh, there, were, there were another couple anyhow but there were, there were six girls and um, three boys but unfortunately uh, John died now the father's name was Ned Moran 
uh, and their mother's name was um, Ellen Brennan Dan, who married uh, Ned Moran. And uh, I believe Ned was from around um, Comer. And uh, the family at that stage then were residing, I believe, in, in Moaning Roar in the rail yard. And um, as I say, there was a, a huge uh, catastrophe amongst the family because it devastated everybody. And there was an inquest held and um, it was found to be an accidental death. It appears that uh, this fellow, he was a, a sergeant, uh, Sergeant O'Brien. Uh, it appears he was cleaning his gun and... Um, it was supposed to have gone off accidentally. But the, the folklore of the incident was totally different within the family, certainly within our family, who were obviously closely associated through my mother. So um, it, it was passed down over the years. And um, I read a book a couple of years ago. I was thinking, can I go there maybe four, five, six times a year? I, I I would be in the rail yard obviously the same amount of times and in Castle Comer and all of those areas are dear to my heart and I, I just felt this year that there could be a commemoration of sorts and there was no mention, I mean a hundred years later, is, uh, John is a hundred years dead and it, it's almost as if he never existed uh, and that's a bit sad as far as I'm concerned. They were a very strong, hard-working family, each and every one of them, I can vouch for that. They, they reared their families well, uh, and uh, a lot of their children became very successful. Indeed, three of them, four of them became professional footballers. Jimmy had three sons and one daughter, and the three sons were professional footballers. And Marie, Maria was a school teacher, uh, and, and, and Bill's eldest son was a footballer also. So they played with top clubs at the time. They were a good family, uh, an excellent family, dependable and hardworking, and they provided well for their children. So it, it, it's something that I, I felt needed to be rectified. And uh, I, I don't believe the story has ever been told. And that's why I, I got in contact with yourself, because I knew you were the man to go to. And um, here we are. Joseph. What effect did John's death have on his wider family at the time? As I say, his sisters were obviously devastated. And of course, his, his other two um, brothers as well. Uh, and um, it just caused the breakup of the family, not internally, but uh, they, they felt they needed to get out there. Their confidence was shattered because they didn't believe that... Um, they, they, that they got justice. I, I think if that case was retried today, I, it could be a whole different verdict. But look, it happened. And at the same time, I, I want to put the story out there because, as I say, I read a book 
about three or four years ago, which I bought in a bookshop in Kilkenny. And it was a, a book about the revolution. And um, I thought I'll read that and see if there's anything about John. And there was a, probably a line and a half mentioning his age, the eldest in the family. And and that was it. And um, I think he deserves more than that 100 years later. Because bearing in mind, there are a lot of people being celebrated after 1922 and they were on the, maybe on the opposing side uh, and they're being looked at as, 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 as heroes you know my, my uncle John gave his life for this country so it, it's important to get the story out that the, the wider family nieces, nephews and all of that were badly affected yes heard quite a bit about the executions of John Murphy and John Phelan at Kilkenny Military Barracks in this, the centenary year. Do you believe that your uncle should be remembered in the same breath as the two aforementioned soldiers? Most certainly. I mean, he he, he seems to be um, the forgotten man of the liberation of Ireland at the time, uh, when it was under threat from all sides, and many sides. Uh, and he, he stepped up and and volunteered his time to defend our country. Uh, And I'm certainly proud of that because I'm a very proud Irishman. Uh, And uh, it it, it behoves me to to mention his name at at this time because he paid the ultimate price. Our family paid the ultimate price. His brother's sisters paid the ultimate price. So there were an, an enormous amount of uh, members of the family, the children, uh, uh, we'll say, the grandchildren of, of, of um, Ellen uh, uh, and Ned, who, who paid an enormous price, uh, having heard the true story as we have. Now, I'm not criticising uh, 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 the court-martial, but I, I tend to think that if, if the same court-martial and the same information was available... I'm not sure. Uh, I believe, actually, that uh, the verdict would would be different. Now, I'm not looking for vengeance. I mean, it's 100 years ago. And, I mean, his his people, the man who who shot my uncle, uh, they're getting on with their lives, I'm sure. And I, I, I bear no animosity to those people. But at the same time, it's important that I highlight a a grievance that has been with this family for 100 years. Do you believe that your Uncle John has left a lasting legacy following his death? And if so, what is that legacy? The legacy he he left was he gave his life for Ireland and, and no man, no woman can make a greater sacrifice. And he'll be long remembered as long as I live. And I'm sure I can vouch for my siblings as well, my brothers and sisters and my relations. And uh, I'm I'm bursting with pride 100 years later talking about my my uncle uh, John because, you know, uh, those people, their children uh, were so good to me. I I met all my aunts. I met my other two uncles as well. Uh, and finer people you would never meet, finer Kilkenny people. Uh, and, and I mean, there are thousands of Kilkenny people earning a livelihood outside of the country as much as inside. 
Uh, and I, I would say, yes, uh, our family is a very proud Kilkenny family, and I make no apologies for that. Uh, we paid the ultimate as a family, paid the ultimate price. To conclude, Joseph, to the ordinary people across Carlow and Kilkenny who are listening to this programme, and indeed to those with a keen historical ear and interest, what would your short statement be to perhaps pay tribute to your uncle? My short statement would be that he's, he's a man uh, and he stepped up to the mark without being asked uh, and he served his country loyally and no greater deed can any man or any woman provide for their country. And a very big thank you to Joseph O'Neill there, who got in contact with me recently and recorded that piece on very short notice. And didn't he speak so eloquently about his late uncle and the pride that he has for him and the continuing battle to have his name remembered alongside so many other of our fallen heroes. Right now, it's time for a commercial break. But when we come back, we'll be hearing from writer and director Gillian Grattan on the upcoming radio drama The Burning of Woodstock. We'll be back shortly. Turning the clock back to 1922, you're listening to The History Show on KCLR. With thanks to the Heritage Office of Kilkenny County Council and the Commemorations Unit of the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gaeltacht, Sport and Media. The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. And you're very welcome back. This Sunday at 8pm here on KCLR, we'll be broadcasting a very special radio drama commemorating a key moment in the history of Kilkenny during the Civil War period the burning of Woodstock House, which occurred 100 years ago. The radio drama will feature many names familiar to you from various drama circles across the county and beyond, reciting a dramatisation of the famous event while also using archive newspaper materials to bring the event to life for a modern-day audience. The piece, commissioned by the Heritage Office in Kilkenny County Council, has been written and directed by Gillian Grattan. I spoke to Gillian recently about the upcoming drama and what we can expect to hear this coming Sunday. You're going to hear that interview very shortly, but first, a clip from the drama itself. In this piece, we hear Brian Ty, played by Declan Taylor, reading a self-penned letter to his cousin Toby, gifting the Woodstock estate in the event of his death, shortly before he went off to war in 1940. This letter was later to cause legal controversy. My dear Toby, I got your address from Noreen. I hope all goes well with you. I am off to France next week. I have, for formality's sake, made my will, and I was wondering whether you would like to have Woodstock if anything happens to me. There's not much left, but you could make a small home in the park if you wished, and when you retire. Also, there is quite good trout fishing and rough shooting, and in a hundred years the Forestry Commission lease will be up and you will have about 6,000 acres of freehold land. It costs me nothing to run, and brings in about £100 to £200 a year, depending on the salmon season. Of course there are pensioners, but they are provided for out of the revenue. Let me know your views, and perhaps we could meet and talk it over. Needless to say, 
if I did anything so rash and married, I should leave Woodstock to my wife and child, if any. But I don't think that there is much chance of that for the duration. I shall be in London on Friday and Saturday. Yours ever, Brian Ty. Gillian, first and foremost, could you tell me a bit more about the radio drama The Burning of Woodstock? Yeah, it's a radio play, sort of a docudrama i written about the burning of Woodstock House, which happened 100 years ago, July 1922. So I live in Thomastown and I, you know, I, I would walk up there quite a lot as well. But um, last year I did a radio play about Castle Comer, the Coolbon ambush, and I was looking for something of a similar nature but obviously like, because Woodstock is so close and it's such an amazing the grounds are so amazing and the building the house up there I started looking into Woodstock house as a project to do so it's essentially a kind of a docudrama I suppose it's the, the format is it's like two radio present a radio presenter chatting to a local historian about the Thai family who resided in Woodstock over many generations and they're kind of leading the the piece through different generations of that family up to the burning of the house and some events that happen afterwards. Presumably you had to undertake a lot of background research in preparation for this project, did you? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I I kind of, I started off with one idea and it just went off in a very different direction to what I'd initially planned in my head, but... There's so much uh, information on like on archival websites and my biggest resource, because I used a lot of news reports as well, was the British newspaper archive, which was one really great resource. I had a lot of news, which also they contain Irish newspapers as well. So every piece of information that I was looking for pertaining to this story, I could find on there. I could find a newspaper clipping from back then if I was looking up something about Lady Louisa Ty there was so much information on her on all of them in fact and that whole family so I was able to to find a lot of stuff on there I also read Owen Swithin Welch's book and I used that last year as well that was a great resource but there's a book called the, the the story of Woodstock House which was written by Thomas J White his father was living in Inishy at that time so that was a great resource as well yeah, and I spoke to some local people in Inishig too. So between the, all the archival material and just talking to people who are like live in the area would have a local knowledge. That was my research element. And I suppose I went, my initial idea was totally different as I was saying. And then I, I decided I would start looking at the actual, the Thai family. And so the story bounces from one generation to another up to the burning of the house and thereafter. What inspired you to undertake this radio drama, Gillian? Well, because I'd done, last year I did, as I was saying, I did a, a play called um, Kuban Women, which was looked at the Kuban ambush in Castlecomer through the lens of women. So it was like Nicholas Mullins, who's from Thomastown, who was from Thomastown. He was one of the men that was killed at the ambush in Castlecomer in Kuban. <laughs> And his mother was from Thomastown. So that was what initially got me into that. I'd never really written a historical play before. Like I write, but it would never be like really history, just more out of my imagination. And I really enjoyed doing that last year because I, like I, it was a way I'd never worked before. Like the research element, reading up on stuff and trying to piece together a jigsaw. So 
and then obviously because Woodstock is so close and accessible for me I, I spent a lot of time like walking around sure people in industry but probably saw me walking around and thought here's your woman again what's this one at like you know but um no not really but like I'd spend a lot of time there and I think when you're actually in the gardens of Woodstock House and you look at that old house you can kind of because there's a lot of photographs available if you look for them um that you can nearly envisage the house like still standing there even though it's an old room now so yeah I just thought it'd be really interesting to look at sort of the events surrounding that but as I was saying it kind of I, I kind of stepped a little bit away from it I mean the burning of the house is still very much in the story but the more I started looking into the Thai family there's such an it's such an interesting story they were like you know followed by tragedy and so much awful things happened but then you had people like Lady Louisa Thai who was so good for the area and industrious and well respected in the area so you know, I, I followed generations of the family. And then after the house burned down, one of the sons who inherited the house, he actually planned to go back and rebuild it, I suppose, to the way Lady Louisa would have had it in her day. And unfortunately, he died in Dunkirk. So and kind of put an end to that. And then, you know, obviously now Kilkenny Council have it. And, I don't know, you know, a lot of people spend time there walking around and stuff. And the gardens are amazing. So... You mentioned about the popularity of Woodstock House as a tourist attraction and indeed for locals. Did you find yourself visiting it more frequently as a result of undertaking this body of work? Yeah, I did, but I would have been out there anyway. I do, like I do, I spent time out in Inishtig anyway because I do drama classes out there, but, and I would do that that um, Woodstock loop um, quite a bit because I have a dog. When you have a dog, you get to walk to these places and you're kind of, and it's only up the road for me because I live in Thomastown. So yeah, I would have walked that area anyway um, like because it's a near, it's nearby and it's a beautiful place to walk around. Even if you don't go up to the Woodstock house, that whole river walk is absolutely gorgeous. Like they were the, the gates there at the Points Road, like, you know, all along there, which would have been an access, an access point to Woodstock house then as well. Um, and what I did find really interesting was when I was looking through old newspaper articles from back then that it was such a big tourist uh, attraction back then which is not even something I would have thought was a thing I don't know I, 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 I guess people did go on holidays and trips and days out but it was open to the public and people could get in and out and just walk around the public it was open to the public so uh, back in those days until like you know when the black and tans came in that was the end of that <laughs> so um yeah so that was an interesting fact that I had not kind of thought about that people did do trips and holidays and they'd have the Thomastown brass band play up there and Inishtig band and stuff so yeah it was a very popular air spot even back then for people to walk around you know tell me a bit more about the performers in this drama Gillian I have local actors um Brandon Corcoran He's well known on the Kilkenny circuit. He's uh, he's in it. He's so himself and uh, and Delia Lowry. So he's playing a local historian. So he's all the facts about the Thai family, and she's sort of the presenter. So I, their role within this piece is to kind of to steer the story in the direction of what we're talking about. So we'll go from one generation to the next. So they're talking about each generation. Um. So they're, I suppose they're like narrators, really, if you want to put it that way. But um, then we have Avian Murphy, who's well known in Kilkenny, I'm sure. She's a local actress, but she's, I think she's based in Dublin now, and Declan Lowry. So Declan and Avian, we 
I use a, like I had found I sourced a lot of um, newspaper reports, as I was saying, from British archival newspapers and stuff. So we, what we've done is like added them in um, some of the reports, also some reports from the Houses of Parliament, um, a lot of that kind of stuff. So Jacqueline and Aveen were reading a lot of that stuff and depending on which newspaper was being used. So it might have been an Irish newspaper. It might have been a newspaper from Sheffield Hull all over England reporting on various things about Woodstock. They were, you know, using those kind of um, accents, regional accents. So that was that was quite a bit of fun. So Jacqueline and Avian are, are kind of doing all the news reports. Brendan and Delia are the newspaper or the radio, the radio section, whereas Avian and Jacqueline are doing all the historical elements that have been taken from newspapers, etc. So the sound design and recording is all by Martin Bridgman, who, you know, yourself is that Casey Laura and has a amazing knowledge of music. So I never worked with Martin before, but he's been amazing to work with. He's very hands-on, very helpful, loads of great suggestions. And um, really, it was great to work with him. You know yourself, he's an extensive, like, musical knowledge. So he's making suggestions about stuff like that, like, you know, musical pieces we could use or musicians that we could use because he's all about promoting music. So, like, there's a lot of harp music and stuff within the piece. So it was great to bounce off Martin with that stuff and just in terms of the editing and the sound of things. Yeah. So that's that was Martin's role within this project. And also just to mention that the piece is funded by the Decade of the Centenaries uh, grant. So the whole piece was, you know, the whole project was funded by that. So we were lucky to get that grant. We've spoken to a number of various artists, directors, writers and musicians on the History Show this year who've undertaken projects with an aim to recreating and remembering the pivotal moments in our local heritage. Do you think it's important that creators such as yourself perform this duty? You know, for me, anything like this is is a story. You're telling a story and I'm like a storyteller. So whether it's something that comes out of my head or a historical drama based on real events which you have to obviously be more careful with. But once you're telling a good story, for me as a a writer, um, you know, if you tell it right and you have the good good actors on board, then it will engage with people. But yeah, your question is about the historical context. Of course, it's important to remember these things. And just for me as a writer, I've written two plays based on historical events now. And it's been a really interesting process for me because of the research elements whereas before like with other projects it wouldn't be based on real events that have taken place they're becoming like for my imagination do you know what I mean to be a bit of research but not to this extent and if you like if you find a story that's historical and there's something behind it that, that grips you when you start like delving into it you'd be amazed what you can find out there like, as I was saying, the story that I had and the way I was going to tell this story at, at the beginning was completely different to how it ended up. And that's just because of various people I spoke to, like Eddie Cody in Inishtig. He's a He seems to be the go-to guy in Inishtig to chat to on this stuff. But just when you start delving into historical context and, like, piecing pieces together, like like a jigsaw, and then you know when it starts to feel like oh you're you're fitting things together it's it's really kind of satisfying it was for me anyway so and I I enjoyed that process I guess of using information that I was finding and piecing it together in like in a way that makes sense 
Finally, Gillian, can you tell our listeners when and where they can hear The Burning of Woodstock? Uh, the Burning of Woodstock will be broadcast on KCLR 96FM on Sunday, the 16th of October at 8pm. And it will be made available later on as a, as a podcast. So, so don't worry if you miss it on Sunday. You can just listen back to it on the podcast. So, Mary Ty, what can you tell us about her? Well, Jane, she was born in 1772 to Theodosia Ty, a Methodist leader, and William Blatchford, a Church of Ireland clergyman. Having had a strict religious upbringing, she married Henry Ty, her first cousin, at the ripe old age of 21. Her first cousin? Surely not. No, not an unusual practice in that period. A marriage of this kind ensured that wealth and property would remain within a family, which is imperative. Although their relationship is said to have been a, an unhappy one. Perhaps poetry was her one true love. Well, you may have a point there. And she was much loved by her peers. They say she cast a spell on the young poet Keats. He was touched by the romantic melancholy of her writing. She was the spark that fired the train of his poetic tendencies. And that final clip there from the upcoming The Burning of Woodstock radio drama. And before that, we heard from Gillian Grattan, the writer and director of the upcoming drama, The Burning of Woodstock House. As Gillian said, the drama will be broadcast this coming Sunday evening at 8 o'clock here on KCLR on FM and in app. So do set a reminder because it's going to be a wonderful piece. And I mention also to KCLR's Martin Bridgman, who I know has been doing Trojan work in its recording and production, among other things. So fair play to Martin for that. Right now, though, it's time for another commercial break. But don't go away because when we come back, we're going to be hearing about the typical attire that our ancestors wore to the dance halls 100 years ago. And let me tell you something, the more that things change, the more they seem to stay the same. Keep it tuned right here to The History Show. I'll be back in one. The History Show on KCLR. With thanks to the Heritage Office of Kilkenny County Council and the Commemorations Unit of the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gaeltox, Sport and Media. Tuesday nights from 6. This is KCLR's History Show. And you're welcome back to part 3 of the History Show. It's now time for part 2 of our chat with Ruth Griffin. Ruth, as you might recall from last week, is a fashion historian and writer with a master's degree in history and culture of fashion from the London College of Fashion. Last week, Ruth gave us a broad overview of the everyday clothing worn by people across Carlow and Kilkenny. And this week, she's back to tell us more about what they wore to the dance halls and more. Ruth, who were the famous fashion designers in an Irish or indeed a worldwide context at the time? A very, very obvious one and one that people know really a lot about is Coco Chanel. So the 20s were really her heyday and she's kind of named as the designer who invented things like the little black dress and the suntan and these kind of classic items that we just see as kind of staples of our wardrobe but they began at this moment in time her influence is huge I mean it's still huge and it's a brand that still caters to the modern woman but it would have been very radical at the time um and obviously she was she was working from Paris but that influence would have fed far and wide um and again the idea of a lot of a lot of Coco Chanel's ideas actually come from the convent that she was brought up in and it was quite streamlined um, it, um, I won't say it was easy to reproduce because you know a black Chanel dress and a Chanel, and a black dress you make at home are obviously very different, <laughs> but you could get some of that look you you know yourself. 
you could um Coco Chanel was brilliant in terms of styling as well so it was all about the bobbed shingled hair the pearls and the t-bar shoes and so there, there was elements of that that you could develop yourself um, in terms of Irish designers some of the bigger designers in the 30s would have been those designers were able to start a business um, and one of them that stands out actually is Jack Clark he had a business on South William Street in his heyday would have been from the 40s to the 60s but he began working from the 30s um, and what he did is he made amazing um, couture coats that he had a lot of skill design skill and a, a great um, a great design and making team in Dublin but he used a lot of really beautiful Irish tweeds um, and he sold to the they were really couture level very handmade beautiful coats um, if you ever see them on eBay you should purchase them they're very they're worth they're worth a lot now and and um, they're still very beautiful um, even over the space of time um, but he yeah he had this really great um, kind of tight fashion business let's say and it was very much just focused on coats obviously we need coats in Ireland so it was very lucrative um, and he it, you know he did very well in Ireland he would have sold across the country he would have sold in big department stores like Arnott's and Kellett's in Dublin but then he was quite a visionary so he kind of looked out as well so he was selling in London he was selling he did many accounts across Canada um, and in New York Lord and Taylor New York Harrods London so again it's an interesting story of somebody starting a business at that particular moment in time Ireland was changing and we were close to you know end of the 40s we became a republic um, you know we were you know there's that kind of youthful energy um, and he did very very well it was a really successful business right up until the 60s and he would have been one of the kind of founding fathers people say of kind of the fashion industry um, and also it's where very famous fashion designer Sybil Connolly would have started her trade um, working in his he had a boutique as well as a factory he had a boutique on, on Grafton Street so yeah he was he was a very interesting Irish designer um, stroke manufacturer um, and yeah you know places like in Kilkenny and in Carlo would have been stocking his coats um, they would have been in the higher end of the market but they would have been um, very seen as something very beautiful an investment buy what we call today and they'd last yeah the test of time dances and dance halls generally have always been an integral part of our social makeup can you briefly describe what kind of clothes would have been worn to the average rural dance so dressing for a dance you know it's fun today it was fun then and you know the kind of everyone talks about the roaring 20s and obviously or ireland's not quite you know those big fashion capitals but at the same time um you know there was a you know a young generation that in in a very new free state um that you know were having fun and they wanted to look well and in terms of how they dressed again it would have been your dance would have been the sunday best so at whatever level of society you were at you you know if you were a man you were going to be wearing a suit and um, and in a lot of ways because um men often went to tailors like they you know by comparison today the men would have been better dressed in that they would have been potentially wearing a very well cut suit in a good fabric 
Um, now you could buy ready to wear as well, so they could potentially have had that too. But I mean, a local tailor could have um, suited and booted a man for a night out um, very well. And yeah, there you know the wardrobes are so much smaller than they are today. We've got just endless amounts of options, but people would have had their Sunday best and their working clothes, you know. So the Sunday best potentially would have been what they wore for dances as well. Same as women, and um, you know, again, if we're going back to the whole dressmaking side of things, and going back to Coco Chanel, who kind of you know the little black dress, and the beauty of that is the little black dress could be trimmed up. So that what I'm trying to say there is that you know if someone was quite nifty with a needle, a girl could have like lovely white collars and cuffs for her you know Sunday best, but she could have adapted that look uh, quite quickly with like. You know nice buttons or diamante buttons or something for her night out um, and fur was also important so obviously today we have a very different view of fur but uh, particularly in the 20s you know you've got your fur collars and cuffs um, so uh, a girl could also accessorize in that way so there's quite simple things that um, uh, the, a girl would have done at that point in time to, to dress up but I mean, it would have been important to look really well. It would have been important to be as stylish as you could be. You know, I think so often we look back at history and we we don't quite we, we kind of dehumanize people a little bit and we forget like there's still people like us and they just wanted to look great. And with, you know, whatever budget they had, they would have tried to do that. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a bit of a picture of what, how people would have dressed for that time. And thank you very much once again to Ruth Griffin there, fashion historian, writer and blogger. And you can read Ruth, Ruth's blog online at www.ruaruth.com. That's R-U-A-R-U-T-H dot com. It's time for our last break of the evening, but when we come back, we'll be hearing an interesting piece about Wine Gap's post office, which also doubled as the village's telephone exchange. Talk to you in a bit. Exploring the lives and events of 100 years ago in Kilkenny. The History Show on KCLR. With thanks to the Heritage Office of Kilkenny County Council and the Commemorations Unit of the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gaeltacht, Sport and Media. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. And you're welcome back to the final part of tonight's History Show here on KCLR. Now, last week we heard from Noreen Hayes, who told us about the centenary of Wine Gap's community grotto and the other historical sites around the village. One other conversation piece that was raised concerned the now-closed Wine Gap post office, which also doubled up as the local telephone exchange for the area. Let's hear a little bit more about that now. Noreen, there's a number of interesting photos uh, that are printed around the village. I have to say it's very unique and, and it's a lovely site, I suppose, particularly on some disused buildings. Um, one that struck me in particular was of a man sitting at what seems to be a telephone exchange. Well, can you tell me more about that? That was the old post office. Sean Ryan was the postmaster. Uh, <clears throat> Sean would have retired, I think, around 1997. And uh, the post office closed, like many, many post offices all over the country, uh, have closed down in, in recent years. And the post office was always a focal point. Uh, for people, and uh, the he Sean rang, uh, ran the telephone exchange. He was the, there for a number of years, and I suppose in today's world, people probably wouldn't realise, <clears throat> you know, how unique 
the, the, the postal and the um, telephone service was. Indeed. You know, you had to dial up and uh, the postmaster answered and then he had to put you through here in Wyngham anyway to Carrick and Shore and then, <laughs> and then you were eventually put through to wherever you wanted to. And we were probably one of the last areas to go automatic. I, I think about two miles down the road we had 056 which was Kilkenny and they were automatic for years and years and then you had Washburn coming in at the other side 051 eventually we went into Washburn so all wind-up numbers are 051 but the post office like people went there for their pensions there was a shop there um, and over the years telegrams when there was no phones when people didn't have phones the, the telegram yes. was the only way of communication uh, of course, you got <clears throat> the, the various licences. I suppose as time went on, you could get your radio or television one uh, licence. <clears throat> you could get a gun licence and a bull licence there as well. And uh, so it was a great service to the community. Post offices were terrific services to the community. Mm. Uh, going back over the years, that was a focal point where people did meet. And I suppose you had the, the general news of the area. Yes. <laughs> when you went to the post office. Absolutely. But it, this, the, that particular photograph was given to us by the Ryan family. And uh, it's a unique photograph because it shows exactly, you know, it captures exactly yes. what, uh, the work that he, he was doing, you know, the, as part of the service. And thank you once again there to Noreen Hayes for that little story from Wine Gap. Well, that's just about it for this evening's episode of The History Show. Thanks for tuning in and I hope you'll join me again at the same time next week when we'll be further delving into the burning of Woodstock House. As always, feel free to contact me at any time on our email address, thehistoryshow at kclr96fm.com. But until next week, it's a very good evening from me. Thanks for inviting me into your homes as always. Stay tuned for Owen Carey. He's up next with Fully Loaded. And we'll play you out with a song called My Name, It Is Kathleen Clark, performed by Karen Casey. I only played about 10 seconds of it last week. It tells the story of one of the founding members of Coming the Man, who would eventually go on to become a TD and senator for both Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin. And indeed, she was the first female Lord Mayor of Dublin. Until next Tuesday, from me, John Moynihan, it's good night and God bless.